The Durable Restoration Company is a proud sponsor of Berguin Wright Presents. At Durable Restoration, they specialize in exterior historic restoration services. All of their craftspeople and artisans are employees and trained in-house using traditional materials, tools, and techniques that are tried and true. They have a long list of historic landmarks across the nation that they are proud to have helped preserve for future generations. For all your upcoming restoration needs, contact Durable Restoration at DurableRestoration.com or call toll-free at 1-877-340-9182. Traveling into Wilmington today usually happens by way of the asphalt arteries from Interstates 40 and 74. But before the region was developed 300 years ago, the only way in was the Cape Fear River. Well before the days of GPS and sonar, explorers had to study the conditions, read the water, and take their chances when sailing into uncharted territories. For the earliest European settlers, the Cape Fear River bore untold dangers. Be it from ever-changing shoals, a cacophony of unseen debris below the surface, or simply just shallow spots. Advancing upriver toward what would become Wilmington was a risk, and for many an ancient mariner, only one thing elicited a sigh of relief. A signal of safety and hope that would come to represent the harbor of the Cape Fear like nothing else. Hello and welcome to Berguin Wright Presents Cape Fear Legends and Lore, a podcast series telling the stories of North Carolina's Cape Fear region through the history of one of its oldest historic sites. My name is Hunter Ingram. I'm the Assistant Museum Director for the Berguin Wright House and Gardens here in Wilmington, and I'm your host for this podcast. This season on Berguin Wright Presents we are cracking open the essential local history text, Stories Old and New of the Cape Fear Region, published in 1956 by famed historian Lewis T. Moore. Each episode, we take a chapter from the book and interrogate the fact and fiction of that story as told by Lewis. What's true? And what's fabrication for the sake of a good story? This season, we're going to get to the bottom of why these stories have survived for centuries in some cases, and what they say about the Cape Fear today. This episode, we're honoring an enduring icon of the Wilmington area that goes all the way back to its earliest days of development, the Old Dram Tree. A bald cypress tree that stood on the bank of the Cape Fear River just south of Wilmington The image of this tree appearing on the horizon was said to draw cheers from those on board any vessel making its way upriver, as this meant that they had navigated past the dangerous natural hurdles that dotted the river. But just how it got its name 
is something that we will discuss in just a few moments. Today, Dramtree is a name that can be seen all over the Cape Fear region. From the park and boat launch that sits at the base of the Cape Fear Memorial Bridge to the publishing company that is run by this episode's special guest. It can be seen on neighborhood street signs and is even the namesake of a local Shakespeare theater troupe. Despite what would be a fateful end, the Dram Tree is etched into this region's identity, and it's also one of the chapters in Lewis T. Moore's book, titled Old Dram Tree Greets Ancient Mariners. It's one of the few chapters that also comes with an illustration of one of the core legends that he discusses and shows a woman holding tight to the tree's trunk as a ship sails off in the distance. More on that later. In this episode, we won't just be talking about the mythology of the Dram Tree, though. We will also talk about the Cape Fear River itself, a waterway so essential to this region's history because, in no uncertain terms, it's the reason it was developed in the first place. Where does the name Cape Fear come from? Was there a sense of peril in navigating it when this region was in its infancy? And what was so special about that old Dram Tree's story that carved a place for it in the history books, even as progress cast it aside? We'll answer these questions and more on this episode of Berguin Wright Presents Cape Fear Legends and Lore. Joining the show today is Jack Fryer, a local historian and the founder and publisher of Dram Tree Books. Jack, thank you so much for being here. It's my pleasure. Always good to talk with you. Absolutely. And I am not bringing you here just because you work with Dram Tree Books and we are talking about the old Dram Tree. You have written a lot about the Cape Fear River and the Dram Tree is a essential part of that history. It's essential part of this region's iconography. And so I'm excited to talk to you about not only the Dram Tree, but the Cape Fear River itself. Uh, but I do want to start with the Dram Tree. You know, I think everybody comes to these legends and this lore that we're talking about from different perspectives, different times in their life. And so I'm curious, when was the first time you heard about the Dram Tree and what did you hear about it? Well, my first exposure to it probably like yours, was in uh, Lewis Moore's uh, Tales of the Cape Fear, Old and New. Yeah, it was uh, it was mentioned in there. Yeah, he told a couple of stories that went along with it that have dubious historical provenance for, for several reasons that we'll probably get into down the line here. But I, then I actually, uh, in doing research on another book down at the North Carolina room of the Hanover County Public Library downtown, I came across a uh, postcard picture of the old tree. And so, yeah, I, I kind of pieced things together from there as, as to what it was. And it was a, uh, it was an old cypress tree that stuck out into the river, you know, off the riverbank and uh, apparently been there forever. I mean, you can look at that old postcard picture of it and say that that tree's easily a, a few hundred years old. And, uh, and it looks like, uh, you know, in, in that postcard picture, it looks like, you know, it's been to the wars and back. You know, it's it's not it's not something that's going to make the cover of uh, Better Homes and Gardens, you know. It, and, it, and you know, the tree was located just about where the southern edge of the North Carolina ports are now. And uh, the tree came down in 1947 after 
construction started on the, on the state ports, you know, whether or not somebody could have changed the design or something to preserve the tree, I don't know. But, uh, but the tree was uh, you know, interfering with what they wanted to do to promote the economy and, and build up the state ports in the wake of World War II. And so it was a victim to the chainsaws that finally took it down. But before that, the tree had been there forever. And, you know, the tree in and of itself was nothing special, you know, other than it being a really old cypress tree. You know, the Cape Fear River back in the day, you know, not so much these days, but back in the day it was a freshwater river and a tidal river. So cypress trees could exist like that. And so what it was, you know, it, it served as a, as a landmark, as a channel marker for mariners that were calling on the ports at, at Wilmington. The Cape Fear River is a, a, a wide river down here, you know, the closer you get to the mouth, I think at Brunswick Town, I think it's about a mile across, and it, and it widens out even further as you go south into the estuaries around Baldhead Island and, and Southport and down there. Uh, but the bed itself, the bed of the river itself, you know, outside of the main shipping channel, the shipping channel is only 12 to 15 feet historically, and outside of that shipping channel, it's a sandy riverbed. and Every time a big storm comes through, it shifted that channel a little bit. So that was the reason that mariners coming into the port would stop in Smithville, later renamed Southport, and pick up a pilot to guide them up to uh, the ports at, at Brunswick and Wilmington. And so it was a very treacherous river for, for ships. So in the days of wooden sailing ships, yeah, anybody coming into the river there would pick up a pilot and start their voyage up towards Wilmington, and everybody kind of held their breath, hoping that they didn't tear the bottom out of the ship. So by the time they got up towards the, the Dram Tree, which was a couple of miles below the historical city limit, you were starting to get into a part of the river that was deeper, and the channel was wider, and, and so everybody could breathe a sigh of relief at that point. Well, it became a, a tradition. You know, alcohol was, was a uh, part of sailing back in the day. Not like today so much aboard U.S. Navy ships or anything. But back in the day, you know, a sailor was entitled to his, his, his dram, you know, his dram of grog. And so when they get up there towards the dram tree, everybody breathe a sigh of relief and the captain would whip out the rum and everybody take a shot and shoot it down to celebrate making it up the river again. Uh, the converse was true as well, as you'll read in, in uh, Moore's book about ships on the way out. They would they would take that shot because it might be the last time they get to have a drink before next port of call. Uh, so the dram tree loomed large, not for any special thing other than being a channel marker. And over time, the tree came to be known as the dram tree because everybody take a dram, you know, once they once they got up to where it was at. And a lot of people will ask why this specific tree, and I think the reason is it set out in the river, so it was hard to miss. Yeah, it was easily identifiable. You know, it was a it was a huge cypress tree that sat 50, 60 feet off off the uh, from the riverbank, and so it was pretty. And it also was at a place in the river where you know the the course of the river altered a little bit there, so it kind of jutted out from the land, and uh, it was it was easily identifiable. I mean, it could just as well have been a big rock or, or something else, but it just happened to be in this case, you know, a big old cypress tree and one that lends itself well to drawings hundreds of years later because it's spooky, it's gothic. Very, very photogenic, very, uh, yeah, lends itself well to, to illustration. Um, 
So it's, it's, it's a tree that once you've seen a picture of it, you'd recognize it again. Well, this tree is, as you said, immortalized in so many ways in this region, not only with Dram Tree books, which we're going to talk about, and in postcards. As I've said a few times on this show, I collect vintage postcards, and I have several with the Dram Tree on it. We have Dram Tree Park. There is a sculpture of the Dram Tree at the Wilmington Convention Center. It is no longer here. It was pulled up, as you said, in the 1940s, but it still lives on in many, many ways. And I think that's kind of what's fueled this legend over the years, even though it is gone, that we have so many vestiges of it. We have so many reminders of it in many different ways. And and as you've alluded to, and as I've mentioned in the show, it, it lives on also in the legends that Lewis T. Moore is sharing. And there are two main ones in his book, which I know you know of, but I did want to share it for our listeners because they're really interesting considering I don't personally know of any evidence that actually supports them being true. There's no big names. There's no actual names. They are just generalizations about people. And so it's really fascinating to see how it's been characterized. But the first one that he mentions is tied to Steed Bonnet, the gentleman pirate. And if you listen to our last episode where we talked about the tunnels, the passageways underneath Wilmington, we talked about how the stories related to pirates smuggling treasure underneath the city just likely weren't true because the golden age of piracy had well since passed by the time Wilmington was developed. Exactly. And so... We're going to have to go back a bit farther because Lewis T. Moore says that this happens in the summer of 1718 when Steed Bonnet, the gentleman pirate who we do know was off the coast of Southport in the late summer, early fall of 1718 where he is captured. It is said in Lewis T. Moore's telling that he goes upriver farther than where Wilmington is today and visits a former associate, a former fellow pirate who has since, I guess, renounced the pirate's life and has decided to live on a plantation where he is married with a wife who is said to be very beautiful. Well, when Steed Bonnet gets there, this man who is unnamed actually tells his guest and his guest crew that he has to go visit another plantation owner and that he will be back soon. And he leaves Steed Bonnet and the crew at this plantation with his wife. And during the revelry, the afternoon of drinking, Steed Bonnet somehow comes to the decision that he is going to kidnap this man's wife, and he does. He is said to tell his crew, who is quite apprehensive about kidnapping the wife of their former crewmate, he tells them to tie her up, and they put her on the ship, and they head downriver out towards the ocean. Well, sometime after getting on board, they, for some reason that Louis T. Moore does not share, they untie her and give her free reign of the deck. And as the boat is moving past what is now Wilmington, and keep in mind, in 1718, Wilmington does not exist yet. And the the wife is on deck, and she decides to quietly slip into the water of the river, and she swims over to the dram tree, and she hides in its branches until her husband comes looking for her on his own ship. And they are reunited, and they live out their days in the Cape Fear. Now, that's a beautiful story. But as we've talked about for several episodes now, Lewis T. Moore is one of those writers who is helping preserve these stories, but he's also a really good storyteller. And a story is not necessarily fact. And as I just kind of alluded to, Wilmington didn't exist at this time. So it's highly unlikely that Steed Bonnet's 
former friend is running a plantation just north of Wilmington on the river. But it is one of those stories. I mean, I assume you've heard this story, but do you know of any evidence that this story is true? There is none. <laughs> there's, there's just none. I mean, I've, I've spent the last 20 years looking at the history of the Cape Fear and, and never once have I come across anything like that. Um, the Cape Fear, you know, after the Charlestown settlement folded in 1667, there was no permanent large-scale settlement down here for the next 50 years until Brunswick Town is, is founded by the Moore family in 1725-1726. Now, that's not to say that there couldn't have been couldn't have been one or two isolated people who set up homesteads, you know, plantations. And in this sense of the word, plantation does not mean like Tara and Gone with the Wind. Plantation just meant farm, right? So there's there's nothing that says there couldn't have been one or two people here uh, in the area. But large-scale settlement, uh, no, there wasn't anything, which was one of the things that made it attractive to pirates in the first place. They could come in here and could, uh, do whatever repairs they needed to do to their ship and you know, refill fresh water and, and things like that. But it wasn't like there was a bunch of people around. So maybe the guy, you know, maybe he went up river and, and met with a buddy. That part is not impossible. But there's other other issues with that story. One, you know, navigating the Cape Fear River you know, crossing past Wilmington, you couldn't go straight up the river. You had to go around what's now the Brunswick River to come down and, and get to where Wilmington sits now in the first place, right? So was he going up the Northwest Cape Fear? Was he going up the Northeast Cape Fear? And either way, it's not like those were improved navigable uh, routes that a, that a, a ocean-going ship, you know, even a, a small pirate ship, it's not likely that they would be able to do that without it being a, a whole lot of trouble. So did they load this woman into a, into a, a, a boat, you know, a smaller boat, and row back to the ship, you know, sitting in, in a deeper anchorage somewhere? And then, you know, another problem I've got with it is, you know, this, this business of her slipping over the side and, and swimming for, for the tree in the Cape Fear River. You know, back when Riverfest, back in the I think 1985, 1986 or so, I was a an ROTC cadet out at UNCW, and we decided to enter the raft race, which consisted of six inner tubes lashed together and a styrofoam cooler full of beer. And as we came around the corner, we started drifting towards the pilings of an old dock, and so I went overboard into the water to try and pull us away. Let me tell you, brother, the current in the Cape Fear River is no joke. You know, it, it looks like it ain't moving, but it's moving, right? So a woman wearing the, the typical women's garb of, of the 18th century, early 18th century at that, you know, maybe she didn't wear all the crinolines and everything that a, that a, a you know, high-born lady would wear, but she was still wearing a lot of cloth when she went into that river. And being able to stroke her way over to a, a tree like the uh, like the dram tree, I got my doubts about that. You know, I'm a full grown man and a good swimmer, and uh, you know, I, it was all I could do to keep from from losing it. Um, then the other thing too is, you know, cypress trees generally don't have a whole lot of branches, a whole lot of foliage low down. You know, they're kind of like a longleaf pine in that aspect in, in that you don't really start seeing branches until further up the, the trunk of the tree there. So unless she was part squirrel, I don't know how she would have got to the tree and got up to hide in the branches in the first place. Yeah. Um, so 
yeah, there's there's a you know it's a it's a nice story. It's a fun story. It's a great one to tell around a Boy Scout or Girl Scout campfire or something like that. Uh, but as far as having an, any historical veracity, I see an awful lot of problems there and very little evidence to to substantiate it. Yeah, it's it doesn't lend itself well. If you look at the tree, it doesn't lend itself well to the telling because Lewis T. Moore, he notes that it was in the tree that she is hiding and she stays there until morning. So it's likely that she used the cover of darkness to swim out to this tree again against the current, which would not have been easy. And so it's just, it doesn't seem likely that this would happen. But the tree itself is pretty integral to the story and the second legend that he shares in his book, which is set a few decades later during the first year of the American Revolution, 1775. It is about a young British officer who is stationed on one of the British warships that is supposedly being anchored off the coast of the Cape Fear. Now, this specific ship comes upriver for this story, but the soldier that is on it has an older brother who has long ago moved to the Cape Fear region and counts himself as one of the Patriot soldiers that is starting to rise up against British forces and King George III. Well, this specific officer, for some reason, thinks it's wise to share with his fellow officers on board this British ship He starts telling people that maybe he's starting to see the point of the Patriot resistance and that his brother is very convincing and they start to question his allegiance. Well, that certainly starts to, you know, stick out in their minds when he also is said to on a cold, blustery, rainy night, as Lewis T. Moore calls it in his book, he also slips into the water and swims to the dram tree and hides out because he's had a change of heart. He wants to defect. Now, at this time, as Lewis states, defection would have been a crime punishable by death. And so they start looking for this soldier. They start combing through the waters. They start looking through the marsh. By the next day, they give up this search, but they have started talking to his crewmates. They've started talking to these fellow soldiers who it really dawns on them, oh, wait, this guy was talking about how the Patriot calls kind of started sounding pretty good to him. Well, it's said that this soldier, he stays in the branches again of the dram tree until he sees the coast is clear. Then he swims to shore and he makes his way down to Wilmington where his brother, the Patriot resident in Wilmington, vouches for him so that he can join the militia here locally and he can fight against the British. And it says that he survives the war, and then he lives out his days until old age in the Cape Fear area. Now, I'm going to ask you the same question again. Do you know of any evidence that this story is true? None. But as far as being plausible, it's a lot more plausible than the pirate story. There was a British ship that was stationed here in the Cape Fear River. Geography of the Cape Fear is integral to so much of our history, right? The Cape Fear River is the only river in North Carolina that empties directly into the Atlantic Ocean, and it travels for 147 miles up into the interior, all the way to modern Fayetteville. And so if you're going to control North Carolina, you got to control the Cape Fear River. So you know, with Fort Johnston at the mouth of the Cape Fear down in what's now Southport, the HMS Scorpion was uh, uh, one of the 
uh, one of a couple of British ships that were on station here at different points in time. The other, uh, another one was uh, HMS Viper. Uh, so it could have been either one of those ships. Uh, in 1775, we had already had the, the trouble with the Stamp Act defiance. It was the uh, first open act of defiance against British rule in North America. You know, everybody always talks about the Boston Tea Party, where uh, everybody dresses up like Indians and goes and dumps 300 chests of tea into the Charles River, right? Yay for them. Well, more than a thousand Cape Fear men from Brunswick and Hanover counties lined the banks of the Cape Fear River during the Stamp Act resistance when they tried to land those stamps. Armed men and said, you ain't landing it here. And they did it without the benefit of war paint and feathers to hide who they were. So don't let the Yankees you know, tell you that <laughs> they bought the Tea Party was the first because we actually did it first, right? Way back in 1765. Uh, so there was already, you know, Wilmington was already a place that, that had its fair share of uh, disgruntled citizens who were not particularly happy with King George um, for a uh, uh, a British sailor, and it was sailor, not soldier, um, for one of them to, to scamper off into the boonies and hide and, and start out a new life here as a, as a colonial, that's certainly plausible. Again, you come into some, some details that give me pause. You know, one would be, again, the current. Um, Moore says it's a cold, blustery night uh, if he hid in the in the bushes. And according to the Moore story, they didn't really start looking for him until the next day. So if he hid in the bushes until, you know, hid in the tree until uh, after they finished searching the next day, that means he spent the night on the Cape Fear River up a tree soaking wet. And so it brings to mind the question, you know, what about things like hypothermia? You know? <laughs> I mean, he would have been very susceptible to something like that. Having a brother there who could vouch for him you know, might have might have eased his uh, his entry into Cape Fear society. Uh, but I still think people would have kept a, a weather eye on him to to make sure he was in fact who who and what he said he was, and not a plant you know being sent by the British or anything like that. There were a fair number of of people who were in the King's service throughout the war in different places who ended up on the American side. Um, you know, life aboard a British ship was not a picnic. You know, there was, it was a very harsh regime there. Um, punishments were physical and, uh, the captain's word was law. And if you, if you took any exception with that, you know, being close to a riverbank where you could find your freedom might've looked pretty good, especially if you had a brother who was in the neighborhood who could you know, take you in and help you get you on, get on your feet. Well, not to ask you to kind of get into Lewis T. Moore's motives, but as a good storyteller, what does applying legends like these to something like the Dram Tree do? I mean, they always say that there's a kernel of truth in some of these legends, and, and I think that you're getting at them, that these are plausible. Well, the sailor more so than the damsel in distress, but that these almost give life to this tree, something that by the time people are reading this book, the Dram Tree's gone. Lewis T. Moore publishes this book in 1956. And so why do you think these stories survived and not only survived through him, but made it into his book if there's just not too much plausible evidence that they were possible? Well, you know, the old saying, never let the truth get in the way of a good story, right? Yeah. Um, there's, there's, a, there's a line in uh, the movie Liberty Valance with uh, John Wayne and Jimmy Stewart you know, where the... Uh, 
the newspaper editor says if it's a choice between the truth and a lie, print the lie. You know, and so what you're talking about here, you know, Moore never claims in this book that everything he's writing about it is true. I th- I think the the stories in that book for the most part. Now there are some that are that are pretty spot on. Yeah, I, I think in fact the one after this talks about the first prohibition law in North Carolina. Um, and and that's that's spot on, right? Um, but there's other pieces in there, like the Steed Bonnet story, like the story about this this British sailor who uh, you know, goes AWOL while he's on the Cape Fear River, and others in there that that I prefer to think fall under the heading of, of folklore more than more than anything else, you know. And and with folklore, usually there's one or two little glimmers of historical truth in there, right? But as a historian, I would have a hard time ascribing either one of those stories that we've talked about so far as as being true because there's just no historical evidence to support either one of them. And the only real name we have is Steed Bonnet, who we know is real. We know does have ties to the Cape Fear, but not necessarily in this way. And so that's really the only thing we have to go on. If we had a name, if we had a specific, you know, anything that we could use, that might be kind of a path to track these down. But otherwise, they live in this form for people who read them. You know, Bonnet's career is is pretty well documented. I mean, the guy came here to take over a sugar plantation in the Caribbean and apparently he lived with a woman whose tongue could peel paint at 50 paces because he decided he'd rather run the risk of a hangman's noose as a pirate than live with that woman anymore. So the guy, you know, he's a British Army major. He buys his own ship. He hires his own crew, something pirates never did. Um, and he takes in, takes pirate, you know, takes off to go pirating. He hooks up with Blackbeard and I pretty much ends up a prisoner aboard his own ship. And it's not until, you know, the British government offers a pardon for any pirates that'll come in and promise to be good boys that he actually gets control of his ship again because Bonnet or uh, Blackbeard goes ashore to you know take the king's pardon and get his his slate wiped clean, and you know we know that Bonnet was captured. Uh, he had pulled into the Cape Fear River uh, just north of Southport to uh, careen his ship and make some some repairs to the hull and everything. Uh, you had to do that periodically in the age of sail to uh, repair rotted planks, you know, scrape barnacles and seaweed and things off the off the bottom of your ship. And it was then that somebody spotted him, got word down to Charleston, and they sent the governor in Charleston. There was only one Carolina at the time. Uh, the governor in Charleston sent uh, Colonel William Rhett with two British sloops of war up to catch him. So Bonnet was captured after a running gunfight on the Cape Fear River. But as to any of the other stuff, you know, again, the Cape Fear was not populated in 1718. You, there's an outside chance that there was one or two people who were living in isolated farms at some place on the river. But you know, again, there's no historical evidence to, to say, yeah, that's the truth. You know, um, generally speaking, when we talk about populating the Cape Fear, after 1667, that doesn't start until Brunswick is founded by the Moore family in 1725-1726. Yeah, and the one thing that I'll say before we, before we leave Steve Bonnet in the past is, I was immediately skeptical reading Lewis T. Moore's version of this story. Not that I don't love it, because I do, but he said that Steed Bonnet had a reputation of being a cruel man. 
And that's actually the opposite right. of what Steed Bonnet right. was. Right. He was known as the gentleman pirate. Yeah. And so to ascribe that kind of reputation to him right at the outset of the story kind of just raises my eyebrow about this characterization, this chapter in Steed Bonnet's life. And there's just those little things that when you were reading history, they are fascinating stories, but they do have those little faults sometimes that you can kind of pull at and that might, you know, unravel some of the the interestingness of them. Here's the value of folklore, of stories like that, right? Aside from being entertaining, right? Maybe in telling those stories, you pique somebody's interest enough to where they want to dig deeper and find out what the actual truth was. And that leads you to other stories that are true. You know, our actual history here is so rich and so diverse and so varied, you know, 400 years of great stories. That's what I've built Dram Tree books on is, is the history of Southeastern North Carolina and the Cape Fear. And I can do this till I'm 80 and not run out of material. Now, granted, 80 is a lot closer than it used to be, but still, you know, there is an abundance of stories here. So maybe that folklore has, has value in that you know, most people maybe are, are just going to take it at face value and say, oh, what a nice story, right? But there's going to be somebody out there who listens to it and says, I want to know more about that. And so they start digging and then they get bit with that history bug. And the next thing you know, they're buying my books, which is always cool with me. <laughs> and they're listening to this podcast because that's what this whole podcast is about. It's about finding the fact in the fiction, but appreciating the fact that we still have books like Lewis T. Moore's to read and to talk about. They evolve over time. We can add, you know, footnotes and things like that to to make a more clear, more factual picture. But the fact that they still exist is benefit enough. Now, considering the Dram Tree is such an enduring icon, I believe it's President Taft when he's here in 1909 that takes a ship from Southport to Wilmington and acknowledges or is told about the Dram Tree as he passes by it. It's alive in this region's history through the early 1900s, uh, the 20th century. But why do you think something that is so iconic was so easily disposed of in the 1940s? Was it just carelessness? I, I think it was It was um, probably what Moore alludes to in, in the story about the Dram Tree in his book. I think it was probably ignorance. I think some engineer, some guy pouring concrete, saw a plan that said, okay, the, the southern edge of the port's supposed to go here, that tree's in the way, it's got to go. You know, and, and I don't think anybody told him any different. Now, as so often happens with things of historical significance, whether they knew or not may not have made a difference. You know, if, uh, if North Carolina's economy needed the boost of that port and the tree was in the way, the tree was a goner. You know, it's, it's happened with so many of our structures around here that, uh, yeah, I, I don't know that being of historical note would have saved it, uh, but I think in this case it was probably probably just construction guys on a deadline who who said, "Yeah, that's got to go." Yeah, and I think they took saws to it, and the dram tree is no more. But you're right. Think about that tree that's been there. Yeah, you know, was there all the way through 1947. It saw everything that happened on this river. It witnessed everything that happened on this river for 400 years. And that's, that's pretty special, man. You know, remember when you were a kid in grade school and you, you'd cut the, the tree in, into a slice so you could count the rings and then you'd, you'd figure out, 
you know, what ring represented what historical event. You know, well, the tree was this big around when uh, the Declaration of Independence was signed. Yeah, uh, wouldn't it be cool to have a slice of of the Dram Tree that you could do that with? That would be so cool. But but only history geeks like me think about stuff like that. So, you know, think about the scars it had from the hurricanes that came through. I mean, just it bore this region's history in a way that nothing else can. And it's a real shame that it's not here. I do want to I do want to read something, though. And this was shared with me by Elaine Henson, who is a local historian. She shared a news article with me from February in the 1940s. Uh, I forget the exact date, but it's almost like a eulogy to the Dram Tree. It is incredibly dramatic, which I love about it. I love a good dramatic eulogy. I love people getting very wrapped up in the the sensitivity of history. And and that's what this is. So I'm going to read it. It's titled Tragic Moment. And it says, they didn't cut down a tree. They cut down history. They cut down a legend. And they cut down our pet. We twitch as we think of the saw ripping inch by inch through the grand old gnarled trunk. We put our hands over our faces as we see in our mind's eye that giant great leaning against the sky and then crashing to the ground. Surely the earth trembled, and pirates and old salts and beautiful ladies turned over in their graves at this momentous and tragic moment. This region loved the Dram Tree, and yet for whatever was happening out in the river, you have to remember that after the war, the port and the, sh- the shipbuilding company that had preceded it were a priority. And so that is where it seems that history was cast aside when the Dram Tree was uprooted, and there's a sentimentality to it. There's a sense of loss to it when it's gone, and we really just have the postcards and the pictures and dramatic eulogies in the newspaper that can kind of tell its story now, and it's a fascinating one. I I did want to ask you, though, it it is so intimately tied to the Cape Fear itself, and I know you get this question. I get this question a lot. You have written, as you alluded to earlier, about Charlestown, this first attempt to settle this area in 1664. There's such a mythos, a mythology, this legendary status, not only to the Dram Tree, but to where it's set in the Cape Fear. Do we know why it is called the Cape Fear and how we got to this place where we are the Cape Fear region? Well, it's it, it all goes back again to the geography of, of you know, southeastern North Carolina. You know, you've got uh, the Cape Fear emptying out into the Atlantic Ocean and coming off Bald Head Island is frying pan shoals that stretches for roughly 30 miles out into the Atlantic there. In the days before navigation markers and things of that nature, you know, explorers and mariners prowling along the coast, uh, you know, the east coast of, of the United States, you know, as they pass by North Carolina, it wasn't unusual for them to run afoul of, of frying pan shoals. Yeah, and so on a, a lot of the maps that you see from the explorers, you'll see it listed as, as Cape Fear, right? Now, there's other maps out there where it's listed as Cape Fair, F-A-I-R-E. But I think that is more attributable to inconsistencies in the English language. There was no consistent spelling until after the first dictionary came out. I mean, Shakespeare spelled his name 14 different ways during his own lifetime. So while you might see some maps where it says Cape Fair, it's always been Cape Fear. Frying Pan Shoals was a dangerous place, and it was was easy for a ship to find itself in, in very serious trouble. 
you know, running aground out there. So yeah, that's that's where it gets its name. Well, and, and that's a warning to people who read these maps that are being drafted in those early years of, you know, when you see the word fear, it, it right. catches your eye. Today, yeah. we see it as a sellable thing. But at the time, when you're a mariner and that is your only way into this region and you're an explorer with a mandate from someone who's funding you, you want to make sure that your eyes are peeled and your, you know, your spidey senses are flying when you are in an area that has been previously named Cape Fear. Yeah, guys like Verrazano, uh, William Hilton, who made two voyages up the Cape Fear. I did the exploration for the uh, Puritans in Massachusetts in 63, and then then later the uh, Vassals group that established a settlement a year later in 64. All of these guys were well aware of, of you know, the dangers that frying pan shoals represented. By the 1760s, it becomes even worse because... A, uh, a hurricane rolls through and opens up New Inlet just south of what's now Fort Fisher, you know, Federal Point. Uh, so you actually had two ways of getting into the Cape Fear River. But all of those, you know, the New Inlet and the Old Inlet and Frying Pan Shoals, all of those things impacted ocean currents and, and the way water moved in and out of, of the estuaries there and, and, and the inlets. And uh, so if you were a sailor, if you were a captain of a, a wooden ship or a steamship during the Civil War days, Coming up that river there, you really had to be on your toes or else you were going to find yourself in a world of hurt. You can't talk about southeastern North Carolina and not talk about the Cape Fear River. You just can't. And I ask you this because when we think about names, when we think about these icons like the Dram Tree, like Cape Fear, they really provide context for these stories that we talk about even today. You know, the Dram Tree has been applied to so many things. Cape Fear comes to establish itself as the name of this region. We are the Cape Fear region, the lower Cape Fear region, if you want to be very specific. And so all the way back to these early colonial mariners, even before, you see a real awareness of the surroundings and the importance of something like the river, of something like a marker that we find in the Dram Tree. And they're all very intimately tied together. You have to imagine that a tree as old as the Dram Tree was here when they were making that first attempt in the 1660s to establish this region and develop it. And so there's so much history just in that waterway that if you're not looking for it, if it's not sitting 50, 75 feet off the shore, you might not recognize it. And unfortunately, the one that was so very well known is uh, is no longer with us. Before I let you go, though, you do run Dramtree Books. It takes its name from the subject of today's episode. And I'm curious, are there any upcoming titles uh, by yourself or by other authors that our listeners should be on the lookout for? Well, I'm always looking for, for titles. And you know, we did four new books this past spring and uh, did a new volume of uh, Coastal Chronicles, Chronicles Volume 3. Those are all true, factually accurate stories about the history of the Cape Fear and the coast. Uh, and then three books in the uh, Young Readers series of North Carolina history that's aimed at kids roughly 12 and up. 
you know, they're short books, very colorful, very visual. It's intended to, to give them the story about the, the history that we're talking about in the volume without them having to wade through a 600-page history book to do it. And I got to tell you, we move as many of those to adults as we do kids for the same reason. It's a great way to get the story without having to wade through a lot of stuff. But generally what I try to do is, is add a couple of new titles in that series each year. Uh, so this spring, we're looking at one on Brunswick Town got somebody who's working on a book about sea breeze you know, in that young reader series sea breeze was the african-american beach you know, just before you get to the draw or bridge at uh, uh, snow's cut like you go into carolina beach uh, she's doing one on that i'm working on one about the battleship north carolina so that'll be three additional titles in that series that hopefully will be out this spring uh, we have a new series that i'm working on you know it's a little more back burner than the others are but uh, historian Bert Dunkerley used to be a park ranger here at Moores Creek. He's done um, a series, what is going to be the first book in a series called Young Readers uh, Series of uh, America's Historic Places, you know, which covers places outside of North Carolina. So Bert's done one on Jamestown. Got somebody else who's working on one about the uh, Greensboro sit-ins. Uh, I'm doing one on Fort Sumter. And, but, you know, all of those books are, are pretty, pretty quick and pretty easy to do. Uh, having done the four this past spring, it, it allowed me to clear the decks and get into my next big boy book, which I hope will be the definitive history of southeastern North Carolina during the Revolutionary War. The anniversary of the revolution is coming up in 2026, and we have just as much Rev War history down here as we do Civil War, maybe more. Uh, but it just doesn't get the exposure, doesn't get the spotlight that the Civil War stuff does. So that's what I'm neck deep in doing right now. So Jack's a busy boy. You can find Dramtree Books, Jack's books, uh, all over the place here in the area. I would encourage you to shop them, though, at the Bergwin Wright House because we have almost all of them, if not all of them, in our gift shop. The, the Young Reader series is incredibly popular, uh, maybe even more popular with adults than they are with, with young readers. And so they're, they're good kind of cliff notes for an adult, and they are a perfect amount of information for kids. And I would encourage everyone to pick those up. Jack, thank you so much for being on the show. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. And I'm so glad that we got to bring Dramtree books into our conversation about the Dramtree and the Cape Fear. Anytime. And uh, if you want to see a little bit about those books, it's at dramtreebooks.weebly.com. Good talking with you, Hunter. It was good talking to you, and I will talk to you again soon. Take care, buddy. <laughs> Bye. That's it for this episode of Bergwin Wright Presents Cape Fear Legends and Lore. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll be back in two weeks with our next episode, where we will explore the fact versus fiction in another chapter of Lewis T. Moore's Stories Old and New of the Cape Fear Region. Until then, be sure to subscribe to this podcast by searching Bergwin Wright Presents on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. You can also visit us at the Bergwin Wright House in Wilmington. Monday through Saturday, we give tours of the site that will expose you to a fascinating history of North Carolina in colonial America. And while you're there, you can also pick up a copy of Stories Old and New of the Cape Fear Region, which is now available in our gift shop. And be sure to follow the Bergwin Wright House and Gardens on all social media platforms, including Facebook and Instagram, for the latest on what we're doing at the site.
as a nonprofit, this podcast and all the exciting projects done at the Berguin Wright House are made possible by donations and community support. Please consider making a donation, or better yet, join our membership program with exclusive perks and tours. All the money raised goes towards the further education and preservation of Wilmington's oldest historic site. For more information, visit our website in each episode's description or at bergwinwrighthouse.com. And thank you so much for your support. This podcast is written, edited, and hosted by me, Hunter Ingram. We would like to thank Durable Restoration Company for sponsoring the podcast this season. And we would also like to take a moment to thank Rachel Ross for our cover art and the National Society of the Colonial Dames of America in the state of North Carolina for their continued support. See you next time on Bergwin Wright Presents Cape Fear Legends and Lore.